What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 106 of the Adult Education Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with journalist and author John Koblen. Thank you so much for checking out my show. I really do appreciate the fact that you're taking some time out of your day to listen to adult education. Now, this show is all about learning new things or maybe learning a little bit more about some topics. I speak with experts across all fields to learn more about health, education, technology, mental health, and really just about anything. If you'd like to support adult education, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. Word of mouth can be the best way to get new people to check out the show. I've been thinking about this in regards to adult education. The show is called Adult Education, so I think each episode should have a lesson involved, right? So today's lesson is on entertainment history. I think it's safe to say that everybody listening has an experience with HBO. I talk about my first memory of HBO in the conversation you're about to hear. But for me, I vividly remember the free preview weekends that HBO would have. The goal here was to show people the kind of programming they had with hopes that people would subscribe. Now, my parents never bought in. They never subscribed to HBO. But I did get a full weekend of movies that I'd never seen before and shows like Tales from the Crypt that I just fell in love with when I was younger. Now, this was all before HBO became the mega entertainment giant that we know of today. This was before the big hit series like The Sopranos, Sex and the City, Game of Thrones, The Wire, and so many more. So how did HBO get to where they are today? How did the network develop from an idea into one of the biggest brands in American entertainment? That's what we're here today to learn more about. Journalist and author John Koblen, along with Felix Gillette, have just released a book called It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. This is a kitchen sink type book. They've got everything. I can only imagine the hours of interviews and TV programming these guys had to watch to dig as deep as they did. It's fascinating to me to see how ahead of the game HBO was in so many ways when they started out, but then later on how far behind everybody else they were when it came to adapting to today's media consumption habits. Really interesting story from start to finish. So I love this conversation with John Koblen. I hope you do as well. Hey, Jeff. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Jeff. But I will share my first two experiences with HBO with you. Um, my first experience was my parents, uh, they taped, I guess it was one of the Star Wars movies off of HBO in the early 80s. And I vividly still remember the intro to HBO. Like now, if you watch it, you just get that sort of staticky when you log on to HBO shows. But before it was like a really epic intro, kind of like the thing you would see before a movie in the theaters, like reminding you to get your popcorn and soda. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's momentous. It's so incredible. And, you know, I have the same experience, Jeff, like uh, 1980s, my parents had HBO and I became obsessed. And at least you have like good cred and getting Star Wars. <laughs> the movie that I, insisted they tape for me that I watched endlessly was Police Academy 4. Nice. So you, uh, at least you are, you're good in terms of quality. Mine is uh, a little bit more down market. Well, I'm going to ruin my cred with this next one. My second experience that I can remember is HBO would do these free movie weekends where I would literally change my schedule for the weekend around just because my parents didn't ever buy HBO. Uh, so the free movie weekends was all we would watch. And I just remember waking up very early before my parents would get up. So they didn't know I was watching it. And I saw Revenge of the Nerds followed by House Party. And it was like the greatest morning of my life. That's so great. I, and the, the other movie for me was Ghostbusters 2, which go. was endlessly. I watched it so many times from HBO. And I had my father edit it because 
the couple scary scenes that freaked me out. I needed him to just get rid of those so I could enjoy Ghostbusters 2 with no problems. Uh, it's it's this one of the reasons why HBO is such an interesting topic. So many people have their version yeah. of kind of their HBO spark moment. Like, and it usually, I mean, especially for, you know, people our generation, it happened in your youth. And this continues to present day. It's kind of incredible. What's what's interesting too, and I never really thought about this until reading about it in your book, was that the network really wanted to base everything towards men. And the more that I let that thought sink in, the more it makes perfect sense. Like for me, just as an example, I watched Revenge of the Nerds when I was younger, when I was a tween, and I got up early to see it. Why did I love that movie? Because of infantile humor and boobs, which is what every guy wants, right? Like, so it's so interesting to think about that thought now, but I never, it never would have crossed my mind before reading your book. I mean, you and me both, and I'm somebody, you know, my day job is I cover television at the New York Times, and I had no idea until we started reporting this book that HBO, when it was getting into original programming in earnest in the 1980s, was programming explicitly toward men. I just did not know that. And then all of a sudden, just as you put it, sort of hiding in plain sight. Like the first original series that I watched on HBO was Dream On, mm. a show that crit critics said, this is a show, this might be the first American television show that is publicly declared it has a breast fetish. Right. This is kind of what I describe as HBO's original sin. Like HBO's chairman in the 1980s, he believed that broadcast and network television, they were programming more towards women. And HBO was doing everything it could to differentiate itself from the broadcast networks. So the chairman said, well, we're going to program to men and women of the house are going to watch what they watch. And it has taken a really long time for HBO to sort of shake that off. It's taken a really long time, even with programming Sex in the City, sure. even with programming Lena Dunham's Girls, you still had endless scenes and endless series taking place in strip clubs. You had really graphic sexual violence against women depicted in Game of Thrones, something they got really criticized for. So it's taken HBO a long time to figure out, oh, you know what? Uh, women watch television, too. And we've seen that in the last few years from Big Little Lies to I May Destroy You to Mayor of Easttown, shows with women at front and center. And just as recently as six years ago, in 2016, 57% of HBO's viewing audience on Sunday nights were men. 43% were women. Last year, it was a 50-50 even split. Wow, even with still a lot of the programming still geared more towards men, that's interesting that you still find a 50-50 split on that because I would agree with you. I know a few women in my life that will not watch Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon uh, because of some of the violence that goes on and a lot of the attitudes towards women in those shows. So it's interesting that you find the 50-50 split despite the fact that it still does have some of those lingering impacts. Completely. And, you know, it's it's hard to shake off something entirely. I mean, HBO's current programming chief was like, look, we want men to watch, mm -hmm. but we also know that the audience can be much bigger than that. So that's why they've really gone out of their way in recent years. You know, there's so many examples. I named a few of them, but you can also Issa Rae's Insecure is another example, a show that really cares about the lives of women. I think that is what has sort of adjusted that formula. You know, and HBO, they've always pro they've always had shows that could slant female. Alan Ball's True Blood, the mm -hmm. uh, the vampire series uh, from the late aughts. That more women watch that, but yeah, on balance, 
uh, it has been heavily skewed toward men. And you can look at the 1980s, stand-up specials with mostly men being trotted out and boxing and Mike Tyson. Like That is stuff that is going to appeal to a guy. Honestly, as misogynistic as the idea is and how we can look at it, you know, in this day and age and go, I can't believe they would do something like that. But at the same time, it worked for them. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to look at it and say, wow, they're just programming for dudes. It's just a bunch of naked women all the time on this channel. But when it's bringing the ratings, there's also an element that you're like, well, I mean, they're not wrong. I mean, HBO, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. I mean, they, they've just been a total success. HBO was an incredibly successful business in the 1980s. It became an even more, it became an even bigger business in the 1990s once they started programming in earnest, in a serious way, yeah. in episodic television, both comedies and dramas. And we saw that with Larry Sanders. And then we saw it at the latter part of the decade with Oz and The Sopranos. What I was uh, really intrigued by too is that before they really dove in and took their own series and their own production seriously, they actually had a production arm that was shipping shows to other networks outside of HBO. Yeah, so there was uh, HBO in the 1980s. They focused on made-for-TV movies. They focused on boxing, on stand-up specials, on concerts. There was a reluctance to get into episodic television because they looked at the networks and they're like, well, the networks are programming so much uh, TV. There's no way we can differentiate ourselves from the pack. There was one member of HBO, HBO's programming department who was like, we should do episodic TV, please, please, please. So the compromise was, okay, you can have a little studio that's called HBO Independent Productions, and you can make series for other networks. And one of the biggest buyers was Fox. And this is when Fox was just getting going. This is like a year after The Simpsons premiered. In 1990, Fox started buying Rock. They bought Martin. And in fact, if you look at the original episode of In Living Color, that is an HBO independent production, but they did not stick around with that series. And of course, that was such a groundbreaking series and so many stars were born from it. Because once HBO saw the deficit financing, once they saw what the budget looked like, they got cold feet. It wasn't until the mid-1990s where they were like, okay, let's do, let's do TV on our own. And even the Larry Sanders show, that is an acquisition. That was not something that HBO created in-house. The book, by the way, is called It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. There's a lot in here, and I am a painfully slow reader, so I have not finished the book. So I'm going to skip around a little bit here. I do want to get back into the budget conversation here in just a second, but I, I'm a weirdo. Like I know a lot of people kind of came back to HBO sort of in the mid to late 90s and early aughts when they really started to get into the original series programming like The Sopranos and uh, Oz and, the, and Sex and the City as an example. But I was I was into it sort of in the 80s when you would get those free movie weekends or whatever. You go to your friend's house and watch movies. I love the movies aspect of it. And then I took like a 20-year break and I wasn't really around for anything until after college and it was sort of the late aughts when, honestly, there was a girl I was interested in and I learned how to download shows and I started downloading True Blood for her because she wanted oh. to see this show. And we didn't have HBO. And so that's that's kind of what brought me back into HBO programming was True Blood because of a girl. Uh, but it worked. And I've been kind of hooked ever since. And it's it is so interesting. Like, I feel like I missed a little bit of the boat. And there's so many shows I haven't watched, like Deadwood, Oz, all those. I've never gotten a chance to go back and watch those. And I, I feel like after reading this book, there's so much I've missed. <laughs> 
that that is really funny. And by the way, the evidence that True Blood does appeal to women right there. You have a you have real life experience with sure. it. And also, by the way, I'm a very slow reader, too. So I completely, <laughs> completely relate to that. Um, you please tell me that you have seen The Sopranos and you've seen The Wire. Tell me you didn't skip so, those. All right. So you're talking to someone who lives in Baltimore now. So the first project I had when I moved to this city was I had to watch The Wire. But we watched it on DVDs. My buddies had the DVDs. So this is another whole thing. I've not seen The Sopranos, to answer that question. That's one of those I just, it's an undertaking that I know I have to take at some point. But I haven't gotten to that point of doing that. Um, but the DVD market was where I kind of experienced HBO because they would put those movies out. I didn't have the 20 bucks or whatever it was you know, going to cost to get it per month, but I could buy a DVD set of a series for 20 bucks or whatever it may be at the time. So that's that must have been a big thing for them at HBO, too, is that DVD market. It was a huge, huge business for them. Like Band of Brothers, you know, the, their sure. 2001 miniseries or World War II miniseries. That debuted right around September 11th in 2001. So the viewership for it, people were obviously a little distracted uh, by time it premiered. So the viewership for it was whatever. But the DVD sales were through the roof. And that was a budget that was so expensive. I mean, that show cost more than $100 million to make. And HBO notoriously, famously, recouped all the funds through DVD sales. And this became true of The Sopranos. And it became true of The Wire. And in fact, when Netflix was just the DVD company, they saw sort of Netflix style binging with HBO series. Mm. People would request one season or a few episodes of The Sopranos, and then they'd mail it back in and want the next. They would see that people would stick with these HBO shows over and over and over again. So by the time Netflix got into streaming, but before it was making original programming, it was desperate to get HBO stuff on its service, on its streaming service, because they saw what the DVD business was like, and HBO said no, and that's what influenced Netflix to get into original programming on its own. But, Jeff, I know it's 86 hours, and I know it's a huge (laughs) commitment, but you've got to watch The Sopranos. I'm telling you, you will get hopelessly hooked. You know what? One of the things that keeps me away from it is is the 86 hours, because I just find undertaking a full series, you know, after it's done to just be a very difficult thing to wrap my head around. But I already know how it ends. You know, like it was the most talked about thing for so long, how that show ends. And I'm like, well, I already know it. Like, I already know how the thing wraps up now. You you both know it and don't know it. Right. Because we don't really know what happened. We don't know. And the ending is really beside the point. It is the journey to get there. And I'm not going to harp on this too much or harp (laughs) on you too much, but so many people during the pandemic, when we were all sitting at home and bored out of our minds, so many people I know who had never watched it took pandemic time to watch it. There was a huge New York Times Magazine story about this, I think published either earlier this year or last year that focused on The Sopranos getting new life. All of a sudden, it's popular again. Uh, you should definitely do yourself a favor and watch. And if you haven't watched Sex in the City, you should also watch that. I've watched, my wife loves that. So I've, I've watched, I would say I've probably seen most of it, but not really in order because she's, I would always come in watching it with her. And it's very entertaining. I mean, very brilliantly written show. Um, Content wise, not always my thing, but just a very well done show. So I, I, I think I've seen most of it at this point. The binging, though, that's an interesting question that I want to get into here uh, and the pandemic specifically, because HBO obviously has its own proprietary series that it's created. And with the launch of HBO Max, they brought in some other series as well. Uh, 
But I feel like during the pandemic, a lot of people went for their comfort food, you know, whether it was re-binging The Office or Breaking Bad or Parks and Rec or whatever. HBO obviously has those, but a lot of those shows were very serious, very heavy, very dark, where I found most people in my life were going more towards comedy and lighthearted. Do you know, did HBO see an increase? They see a decline? How did that work for them? Well, HBO Max, uh, unfortunately for everybody working at HBO and Warner Media, it's parent company. HBO Max launched in May of 2020, right. like right in the dead middle of the pandemic or those early days of the pandemic. And it really struggled getting out of the gates, even though they brought friends onto the service, even though they yeah. brought Big Bang Theory onto the service. It really struggled out of the gates because they didn't have original programming or they had minimal original programming dedicated to the HBO Max service. And there were all sorts of technological problems. Yeah. I mean, I was victim to that constantly where, you know, I wanted to get out of HBO Max. Like I had been watching something the night before and I'd be clicking my Apple TV remote over and over and over again. And it would just be stuck and I would have to unplug my Apple TV. So it took a while for HBO Max to catch on, but it did begin to catch on last year into this year. Uh, the last time they updated how many subscribers HBO and HBO Max have combined. It was around 70 million. Um, and now, of course, HBO Max uh, or HBO has a new um, parent company in Discovery. So there is going to be a mega service that is going to debut next year between HBO Max and Discovery Plus. So that's going to bring in a whole uh, suite of unscripted programming. And it's probably not to, I mean, everybody is paying more for streaming services and everybody's confused with how many there are, but it probably will get a name change. I don't know if it's going to be known as HBO Max at some point next year. I, I like this. I like the merger, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because I think it'll be launching a whole new movement. I think a lot of these networks are realizing it's a lot harder to get people to sign up for your subscription streaming service than they thought it was. I think everybody thought, look at Netflix, look at Hulu, look at Disney+, Plus, whatever, and look at how massive they are, but there's... It's not easy. Like, it's really not easy to get people to come in. Discovery Plus, I find an interesting uh, merger for them only because the grand scheme of things, Discovery Plus appears to be a bit of a failure, if you will. Like their membership, their subscription base is very small compared to all the others. And you kind of figure they were going to merge with somebody at some point. I'm a little surprised it ended up becoming HBO. But I guess from your standpoint or what you guys have learned is it's more because they need that content to come into their program. And it's true of everybody. If you're not Netflix, there's going to be more consolidation within media because if you want to charge $15, $20 a month for a subscription streaming service, you better have a lot of stuff on there. And it's funny. I mean, you brought this up, Jeff, in terms of pandemic TV, how people wanted sort of comfort viewing. That is Discovery's sure. trade. It's really ambient TV. It's television that you watch you know, while you're folding the laundry or you're doing the bills. You do not need to be on the edge of your seat. HBO programming, though, you know, it is one of those things where you miss a minute of White Lotus or you miss a minute of House of the Dragon, you're lost. You don't know what happened. Some There was some critical conversation. There was some critical plot point that will be called back three episodes from now. So you have to pay attention. The question is, will those two things be complementary, which the Discovery executives argue that they will be, or is it just going to be weird and confusing because HBO viewers are so different from Discovery viewers. 
Well, look, I mean, I just read an article this morning that Peacock is teaming up with Hallmark and they're going to start running all of Hallmark's movies, which I think is a brilliant plan for both of them because you're going to bring in a different audience that maybe wouldn't have subscribed to Peacock and nobody's buying Hallmark streaming services. You know, Hallmark is kind of like Discovery Plus in this. It's kind of mindless in a way that you can pay your bills while you're watching this program, but nobody wants to pay for something that they're going to watch in the background. But if you merge it with something else, then maybe that gives you more incentive to pay for it. Maybe that works out better for the network that's trying to get people to watch their shows. 100%. And, you know, I don't, I cover television for a living, but I don't know anecdotally a whole lot of people who watch Peacock, forget about on a daily basis, maybe even on a weekly basis. So they really need all the help they can get. They got some help earlier this year when they had the Super Bowl, when they had the Olympics. But otherwise, it has just been, it has plateaued. They really, really need some help. And this is also reason, Jeff, why we are starting to see advertising introduced into all these services. Yeah. Netflix, we are weeks away before their ad tier, which is separate from the premium commercial free tier. It'll be cheaper. But Netflix is about to introduce an ad tier. Disney Plus is going to introduce an ad tier by the end of the year. HBO Max already has an ad tier, though. HBO proper content, there are no commercials that run up against it. I would not be surprised within a couple of years if you wanted the ad tier and you wanted to watch an old episode of The Wire, The Sopranos, there'll be an Aflac ad, you know, 20 minutes into it. You know, it's funny just talking about Netflix for a second. When the latest season of Stranger Things came out, I made a comment to my wife. I was like, there's a lot of really awkward just blank spaces on the screen. Like a scene ends, it goes dark, and then it goes to another scene. I'm like, I don't remember that ever happening in the previous seasons. And it was maybe, I don't know, a couple weeks after the series premiered, they announced they were looking at ad tier. And I'm like, that's what they did. They produced this with commercial breaks already in it. So they already know where they can drop the ads when they do things. It's not impossible. I mean, I'm not sure. Like, I can't get into sure. uh their heads but it's not impossible and certainly that could influence netflix's programming going forward i mean we're gonna have to see how much the ads here actually takes off there's some concerns among investors that netflix will actually wind up cannibalizing its current user base where people sure. be like you know what I, I don't watch netflix that much let me dump this expensive 15 15 and 50 cents a month package and get their cheaper advertising version so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens over the 12, next 12 months. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens with HBO. I mean, one of the things we report in the book is HBO, despite being so deliriously successful for the last five decades, in November, by the way, it is its 50th anniversary. Wow. HBO debuted in November 1972. HBO has survived one nearly fatal blow after the next going all the way back to the rise of VCRs, the way you and I watch HBO, where, yep. you know, we've got uh, HBO managed to survive that. HBO survived the rise of DVDs. HBO survived the rise of streaming. HBO has survived one corporate takeover after the next. But when Discovery finally assumed ownership of HBO and its parent company, Warner Media earlier this year, Discovery walked through the door with a debt load of more than $50 billion. Oh and that needs to be paid down immediately so right at hbo earlier this year back in august you know they laid off close to 100 people they removed some titles from its back library so they could get a tax write-off hbo's programming department is unscathed for the most part and obviously hbo 
has been on a huge roll. It cleaned up at the Emmys in September. Um, I don't know if you're a White Lotus guy or not, Jeff, but like that premiered uh, on in late October, and it is. I've seen the first few episodes of the season. It's fantastic. It's pretty close to the level of quality of the first season. But Discovery says, you know, HBO's programming department, maybe you spend a little too much on those glitzy premiere parties. Maybe you spend a little too much on X, Y, and Z. Once again, HBO could be facing a serious challenge. It's interesting, as you mentioned, they've faced one blow after another and they've always survived. And one thing that I'm learning from the book is that a lot of that survival came with innovation. Like they had some brilliant minds that were working with them that were kind of ahead of their time in a lot of ways. And they really influenced the way we watch TV now. But at the time, they were doing these really epic and radical things. I'm shocked, knowing the history of the network, that they were so far behind and so ill-prepared for the streaming wars. Uh, completely. I mean, H the HBO of the 1970s and 1980s really is what Netflix was in the 2000s and 2010s, just this technological revolutionary. And in the process, HBO changed the television business, and in the process, Netflix changed the entire entertainment industry. However, with success comes sort of, you know, a, a nice middle ground where you kick your feet up, you look at how much money you're making, and HBO was very beholden to the traditional cable bundle. So when Netflix is coming around in the late uh, 2000s, in the late aughts, and introduces its streaming model, HBO was slow to see, to recognize how that was going to be the future. So HBO has been really scrambling. They have been scrambling to play catch up over the last, I would say, decade. And HBO Max it's it's pretty good. Like they've done a nice job with their 70 some odd million subscribers. Compare that to Netflix, though. Yeah. Netflix has more than 220 paying subscribers worldwide. And that's the other thing. HBO is basically an American company at the end of the day. HB, if you go to Germany or you go to England or you go to France and there are a lot of people in those countries who love, let's say, Game of Thrones. But rather than putting HBO go or hbo now in those countries they just sold it off to local broadcasters so if you pull people in france they say i love game of thrones and you'd say what channel did it air they're probably not going to say hbo so hbo also has to figure out a way to get an international presence uh netflix has been doing that for a long time. Yeah, that was something interesting that I heard you talk about with Dax uh, was the the sort of uh, overseas market where they were just like, yeah, forget it. We'll just sell the shows to them. Uh, you would think, again, that they would want to build the brand and keep the HBO brand alive. Uh, maybe it was too expensive. Maybe there was too much they would have had to go through to make that work. I, I'm just another one of those things. I'm surprised they were so ill-prepared for that. They were prizing profits. And, you know, HBO was part of Time Warner, which was a public company. So hitting those quarterly numbers were real. That was very important to them. And you know, when we were talking about many of those nearly fatal blows, HBO's parent company, Time Warner, in 2001 was part of one of the most disastrous mergers in corporate American history when AOL merged with Time Warner and became known as AOL Time Warner. At the time, AOL was all the rage. You and I were probably using AIM at that point. And they were, you know, the internet wonderkins. And it became quickly apparent that AOL basically didn't know what they were doing. And that merger was a total disaster. There was complete whiplash among HBO and Time Warner executives over that experience. So when Netflix came around and they were the next wonderkins of the internet, 
there was a lot of skepticism, but this time they were wrong because Netflix knew exactly what it was doing. So a little anecdote about the overseas market. A couple of years ago, I was interviewing an author from uh, Britain. I cannot think of his name to save my life right now. But he found that I was in Baltimore. And he goes, oh, Baltimore, I've been there. And I was like, oh, yeah, what'd you do? You got family here or something? He goes, no, I went on a wire trip. And I was like, what? And he was like, apparently over in Britain, they loved the wire for a time where people were actually offering vacation trips to Baltimore to experience like where the show was filmed and all that. And I'm like, why? Why would you want to go to the worst spots in like American cities to see where this was filmed? I love Baltimore. Don't get me wrong, but I don't hang out where the wire was filmed. It's not a place you really want to be. I was so shocked. It's incredible. And the wire is interesting. I mean, the wire is another interesting case where when the wire was on the air, um, it wasn't the ratings were not good for it. It yeah. was on life support each season. And after the third season, HBO was ready to pull the plug until um, David Simon argued really forcefully, like, just give me two more seasons. And then HBO was like, eh, whatever, you know, good enough. And here we are 15, 16, 17 years later, and we've got people from the UK flying into Baltimore to take their walking tour of the best of the wire. I really wanted the newer series, We Own This City, to be better. Like, it was good, but I, I lived here during the time that all of that stuff was going on. And it was such a wild story to follow along with and to read the book about it. That when the series came out involving so many people from The Wire and everything, I thought, okay, this is going to be some absolute brilliance. And it really, I don't know if you watched it, but it just didn't. It didn't grab me the way I was hoping it would. I mean, HBO is not going to become Disney. They're not going to become Marvel. Sure. In the sense that they're going to be able to adapt one show after the next, and then it spawns a million spinoffs and sequels. House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones prequel uh, that just finished uh, its first season. You know, it, it's not as popular as Game of Thrones in terms of viewers, though it is still massively popular. But it's also not as popular with critics. And just like that, the Sex in the City spinoff, it's, you know, it was quite popular, but it's not as popular with the critics as Sex in the City was. There are a lot of examples of HBO attempting to do this and not quite connecting, but that is what has made HBO so good. It's finding something out of left field. When The Sopranos went off the air, there were endless questions about what's the next Sopranos? What's the next Sopranos? took some time but when game of thrones premiered you know that's the next sopranos and i don't think anybody could have predicted in 2007 it'd be a show about dragons mm. set in this fantasy world and likewise when succession came around i don't think anybody was like oh that's the big next thing in fact internally at hbo they didn't even think so one executive told me at the time eh, it's a utility player well we'll see how it does and that's won the best drama at the emmys twice hbo's always been really good and finding those gems when you least expect it. Well, the book is called It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. John Koblen, thank you so much for your time. Is there a place that people can go if they want to follow along with you or learn more about this book? Yeah, you could go uh, to your local bookstore. You can go to Amazon for It's Not TV. You can go to the Penguin Random House website. Uh, just Google It's Not TV HBO, and you will see a lot of options where to get it. Well, John, I appreciate your time, man. Congratulations. What a great undertaking this is, and I wish you the best. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. 
The book is called It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. It's available now, and I really think it would make a great holiday gift. I know that kind of sounds like an advertisement, but it's not. Trust me, no one's paying me for this. I just think it's a really great book. A uh, big thank you to John Copeland for his time, and also thank you to all of you for listening. Till next time, be well.